it's it's a really challenging thing to do and it's something i'm still working on you know it's hard for me if i have a bad race like of course i i want to kind of um over emphasize the importance of that when in reality it's just an opportunity to learn um you have to detaching yourself from that outcome is such a hard thing to do but it's so important and i think that's ultimately what yields fulfillment and growth over time mm -hmm. this episode of the smart athlete podcast is brought to you by Solpre skincare for athletes whether you're in the gym on the mats on the road or in the pool we protect your skin so you're more comfortable in your own body to learn more, go to soulpre.com. Welcome to the Smart Athlete Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Funk. My guest today is a PhD candidate in immunology at the University of Michigan Medical School. He is also an ultra runner, I think predominantly on trails, which is often where ultras take place. Welcome to the show, Mike Hagedone. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Jesse. I appreciate it. Well, thanks for being, you know... Flexible with me. We got started a little bit early, which is always nice. It gives us a little bit more time if we need it. Um, and, you know, it's always nice when people take time out of their day, which I'm, we'll get to here in a minute because time is time management is always a curiosity of mine. Um, but can you tell me about ultras? Like, it seems like the, the ultra group is pretty small, though I'm talking to more and more of them. Um, what was your kind of personal journey of getting into ultras? Because you you didn't always decide, hey, like I want to go run fifty miles, right? Yeah, um, I mean, my background actually with running is pretty limited. Um, I really was not an active person um, even up to the end of my undergrad degree. Um, so I kind of got into running very casually after I got my bachelor's, um, more as a means to get into shape more than anything. Um, and for the first couple of years of grad school, and, you know, we can kind of unpack that as much or as little as you want. Um, you know, I, I ended up leaving my first graduate program and it was kind of this kind you know, this steady, um, the steady activity that I had that has always centered me. Mm -hmm. um, but in terms of getting into racing, it wasn't until 2016 that I actually, um, ran a formal race. It was a half marathon here in Ann Arbor. Um, and that was, I had not run more than like seven or eight miles, um, in one go, mm -hmm. um, you know, up until that point. So that was kind of a big jump for me was just to go straight into, um, a half marathon. And then from there, it was about, uh, five months until I ran my first ultra. And to be honest, the reason for that mostly was because I just found a love for trails pretty naturally. And as mm -hmm. you mentioned, um, you know, ultras are predominantly run on trails. So I just kind of gravitated towards, you know, I it kind of caught the bug. I was thinking about it. Um, and I just went for my first 50K, um, yeah, about five months after running my first half marathon. And um, since then, I've just, you know, as as I'm sure you found talking to ultra people, like it's an addictive sport. Um, mm -hmm. because the, the community is so amazing and the sport is so amazing and it's just such a challenging endeavor. Um, so I... I love it. And I, I do occasionally go back to roads, um, mainly if I'm doing pacing for anything, but, um, I would much rather spend my time on trails and like technical trails. I love the stuff that grinds you down. Um, that's, that's my favorite terrain. So that's kind of the, the condensed journey of how I got into running really. It kind of, it kind of seems like with ultras, I mean, since you're going for so long, it almost has to be someplace where you don't have to deal with car traffic. I know the logistics of like Ironman, setting up an Ironman, they have to shut down so many roads or segment off the roads or often you end up having live traffic, but they, they try to control a lot of that. 
and then you have to have police and, and all this kind of support which comes with the price tag which is part of the reason uh, we won't dive too deep into iron man but part of the reason the iron man's cost so much um whereas like with ultras like you're not you know you go, you go to a big iron man you've got a couple thousand people competing you know you, you go to an ultra trail race it's not a couple thousand people at the starting line no not for most that's for sure yeah <laughs> and i mean the cool thing about ultras too like there's geographic differences so here in the midwest we don't have enough terrain really to run like a point to point 50 miler for example right or like a point to point 100 miler so you often find loop courses which you know a lot of people find boring there's advantages to that um but you know you go out west you know um there's a lot more open space and you can kind of get these you know point to point races so the the logistics vary you know based on the race and the location but there is kind of this overarching um element of community uh, and you know as you mentioned like a lot of ultras you can go to and you you get to the start line and there's like 50 or 60 people there and it's just mm -hmm. such an intimate experience and that's cool because like you know you can connect with people um pretty easily right off the get-go um so it, it just makes it so much more fun i i really believe in like the the idea of like the shared struggle um like it, a struggle is best you know is best experience when you can share it with other people and that notion of community um so that, that is definitely one thing that you will find virtually at every ultra around the country is just a really tight-knit, close group of people. Do you feel like that, like the people that are at the starting line are almost like your team? I know in college, um, I kind of made this T-shirt for like my group of guys. So I was a team captain for both cross-country and track for the distance guys. And um, I kind of to play on this saying or is you know is um blood is thicker than water right so i changed the saying to say miles are as thick as blood yeah it's that shared struggle that shared suffering that you go through that it kind of makes you family whether you like it or not even you know it just you've all gone through something together and you're all trying to cohesively do something so i kind of wonder like do you get that same sense of like these are my brothers and sisters in arms basically at the yeah. starting line of an ultra for sure. I mean, my favorite races to be honest are those that have an out and back section because mm -hmm. you know it's in those out and backs where you get to see the whole entire field. Um, and, and to be honest, like that's my primary intention going into racing. Like I'm not doing it to try to win anything or try, you know, I'm not the winning and losing to me. Those are kind of arbitrary designations that don't really have meaning at the end of the day. Like the primary intention I bring to every race is can I be supportive of other people? Because that's the beautiful thing about ultras is there, you know, there is technically a front of the pack, a middle of the pack and a back of the pack, mm -hmm. but everybody is coming to that space with their own goal and their own definition of success. And it just, it's a much um, richer experience to be able to support people in those goals and their journeys. Um, and at the end of the day, like you all congregate at the same finish line and, you know, oftentimes these are community events, you know, there's music, there's beer, um, you know, whatever you want to partake in. So mm. it's at the end of the day, it's like, you know, if, if those, you know, if everybody put their, you know, put their effort into the event um, and they supported each other, you just get so much more out of it than if you're trying to do it from an insular perspective where you're trying to, you know, meet a particular time or, you know, you're trying to finish somewhere in the pack. Um, that's where I really think when it gets back to that kind of shared struggle notion of everything. Um, so that, that's why I love it. And I, I love, you know, I love competing. Um, 
but you know, I particularly love it, you know, when it's, you know, you know, I typically will be near the front of the pack. Um, I don't, I don't always win. And again, that's never my goal. Um, but when you can kind of work with your competitors and encourage each other and, you know, you can have those moments where you laugh. I, I recently um, ran a half marathon. I was running one and two and um, the guy I was running with said, I feel like I'm going to puke right now. And we, we both had a laugh, you know, from that. Just it's the ability just to kind of zoom out and contextualize the whole experience and what the purpose is. And the purpose for me is to have fun. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's absolutely like that shared struggle is just a beautiful part of the sport. You know, that's the thing that, uh, you know, so I think if I have to think about this, I think your episode 32, so the 32nd interview I've done, and, and it, time after time after time after time, it's always, I just, I hope to have fun. Yeah. Like, that's something I experienced was that I had my best races, you know, especially I learned this really kind of solidified in college when I just said, my goal is to go out and have fun. These are my time goals. I think this is what I'm going to do, but. I just want to enjoy myself, and I oh, nearly 100% of the time when that was legitimately my internal goal, I would have my best time of the season. And so it's like it, it keeps coming back to that. Just want to have fun. I just want to have fun. I just want to have fun. So where do you think this kind of almost outside perspective, and maybe a little bit inside too for somebody like ultra competitive like me, comes from where it's like, well, no, the purpose is to win. You know, and they're like, Mike, why didn't you, why didn't you win that ultra? Like you could have yeah. won it. And you're like, but I, I didn't care about winning. Like, wh where do you think that comes from? Yeah. You know, that's, that's been an evolution. Cause I will admit, like when I first did get into the sport, I had aspirations of winning everything. And, and it's not to say like, when I go to the start line, of course, I want to do the very best that I can, but that's from a more intrinsic place. Mm. And that switch from an extrinsic to an intrinsic motivation has been, a huge process for me that has developed really alongside my PhD because that competitive nature is something that I embraced when I started my PhD as well. But over time, I've tried to bring the sense of community into that space as well. So there's been this co-evolution of really more intrinsic motivation. And to be honest, you know, that has been a natural process of competing and failing and revising and coming back to it and understanding like how much more you get from forming relationships. But also a big aspect of that for me has been um, getting a coach, um, David Roche of some work called Play Running, um, who, and that's his MO. I mean, his MO is all about, let's go have fun, let's support other people, let's contextualize this within the grand scheme of life, and let's remember that the primary purpose is to just go out and enjoy life, to celebrate life. Like, it's all about a celebration, and having that type of input from someone who I respect and admire deeply um, that's been a huge element of this kind of evolution over time. So, you know, as I said, every time I get to the start line, I want to do the very best that I can, but it's not to beat other people. It's to, you know, it's to really explore what I'm capable of. And I always find that when I get to the start line and all, you know, you kind of lower the stakes in that regard, you know, you look at the, you know, I always feel fear. I look at that fear and I try to put it in its rightful place and just say, today is a celebration of life and let's just go see what that yields, you know? And, and it, it, as you mentioned, those have always been my best races. When I get to the start line and I'm not thinking about the finish line, I'm not thinking about winning or anything like that. It's just, let's commit to this process. And yeah, I, I, I don't know. I've always had my best runs that way. Yeah. You know, I, I think I can't speak for anybody else, but I know, um, when I thought about success, 
it's like a it's a personal validation for me you know i spent um considerable amount of time anybody that's listened to this show for a while has heard me say this a dozen times i spent eight years trying to become a professional triathlete not from the sense that um i thought i was ever going to be world champion though you know like in your head you always want to think about it um but from the sense that i felt like if i could do that that would be success and internally i would feel like i was worth something you know so i almost feel like when you focus so much on i have to win it's almost this again at least personally and, and probably for somebody else since i don't know that any human experience is entirely like individual like you know i probably the first person to go through this is what i'm saying uh, it, it seems like it's it's almost a struggle to um allay those fears you have about yourself about being worthless or not you know not being loved or you know we can kind of dive into all kinds of psychological reasons why you're you're striving for the success um in kind of where i'm going is that I wonder if part of that is cultural too, thinking about, obviously I'm making very generalized you know, ideas here, but the kind of Eastern versus Western philosophy where Western, we're very like individual centric, individual success, um, individual attainment, achievement, Eastern more thinking about the good of the whole, the good of all of society, the good of the group um, or the family, depending on what the case is. I kind of wonder how that affects us in terms of focusing on that initially about I, I need to be the best or I need to, I, you know, I need to be a winner to be worth anything. Right. I mean, one observation I've had is that we are such a results oriented culture, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Like we view every result as an assessment. Mm-hmm. of worth. Um, And that's been honestly, that has been my biggest challenge as a human being is not attaching worth to outcomes. Um, and mm-hmm. I think it's natural when you're, you know, when in my PhD, I'm in such a high stakes environment, in an environment that glorifies outcomes. And so it's hard when you experience failure to be able to take a step back and contextualize that and, um, and to give yourself some grace in that failure and to celebrate, you know, this courage that you're showing. And these are more qualitative things, right? Like we live in a very quantitative culture and a very quantitative society, but these are mm-hmm. very qualitative assessments that are so important to be able to, you know, again, zoom out and understand that this is all part of a journey. And so I think that's been a huge thing for me as well, is being able to look at races and these workouts as kind of just points along the journey. There's no really outcome. Um, There's no outcome that we're really striving for. It's just Mm -hmm. all about this growth that is nonlinear. And that nonlinearity is just a beautiful part of it. but you're right. When it comes down from a competitive perspective as well, um, we do live in a very kind of egocentric space. And I think, unfortunately, um, you know, that, you know, that certainly has permeated sports as well. But I believe that there's huge value in the kind of when everybody wins, everybody wins philosophy. Like it's very mm-hmm. simple. But um, again, it just gets back to that support and um you know, and I and I think that again, ultra running is a space that really has done a wonderful job of this. Is you know not glorifying winners so much and illuminating stories from those of, from the people who are at the middle in the back of the pack who are just striving to reach their potential just like everybody else. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, yeah, absolutely, I love that. And and the notion of self worth too. I, I 
I love that. Um, it's, it's a really challenging thing to do. And it's something I'm still working on. You know, it's hard for me if I have a bad race, like, of course, I, I want to kind of um, overemphasize the importance of that when in reality, it's just an opportunity to learn. Um, you have to detaching yourself from that outcome is such a hard thing to do, but it's so important. And I think that's ultimately what yields fulfillment and growth over time. Mm -hmm. I know even I have the tendency to focus on, I'll say the, the winners or the, the, the top people, which is just kind of a, almost a prerequisite of like having an interview like, or having a chat like we're having now is finding people that perform at a high level and, and then also perform at a high level in some other capacity like you with your PhD. Um, like I was speaking to my last interview was with John Kelly, one of the, um, one of only 15 people to finish sparkly marathons <laughs> and yes. So it, it, it's like, we do focus on those people, but then if you dig deeper and I, I like Johnny and the Barclay marathons in the sense that it does get back to that point of, you know, those people in the middle or the people in the back what the hell are they doing out there? They know they're not going to win when they start. Yeah. You know, they, there's, there's no, I think there, I think maybe 1% of the time, but like a very unlikely do they have any ideation in their head of I'm going to win this. It's I'm going to complete this. And I think talking to some of those people probably yields more like potential lessons about what is life? What is the purpose of this thing? Then talking to the people that do win, you know, and John mentioned that um, there's this kind of idea that the people that finish the Barkley marathons often are said to have missed the the purpose of the Barkley marathons because they didn't they didn't reach um, their limit because they finished. They didn't yeah. reach a point where they could not go any farther. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's beautiful. I'm I, like from a psycho emotional perspective, I'm fascinated by something like the Barkley, um, the Barkley event or also these last man standing events, because the reality is with those like, you know, Barkley, you maybe get one, two, I mean, many times zero finishes. finishes. Yeah, the last two years, zero. And then, you know, with these with these last man standing events, um, you know, you get one technical winner. But at the end of the day, like finish lines are an arbitrary designation, right? right. Like you know, who says that the race has to stop then? These are these are very arbitrary. So it's it's all about like in the process up to that finish line, how did you respond along the way? And I think for those people who don't get to the finish line at Barkley or for those who are not the last man standing, um, that's where the like that's where the gold is, is being able to see yourself work through problems and challenges and responding with grace and responding with detachment to outcome and responding with kindness to yourself. Like there are so many points along the journey where you get to learn about yourself and you get to, you know, again, you get to celebrate this whole nature of existence, which is imperfect. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I'm, I, I love those events and I love, I love hearing, you know, hearing and reading the perspectives of people who don't finish them because it is, it's beautiful. It's, it's, that is life. Um, that has been immersed in kind of this artificial environment. Um, but still, you get to learn so much about these people. So, yeah, I, I love those. <laughs> yeah, as I, I kind of think about it, too. And, you know, I know a lot of people have asked me about, you know, why are you doing this? I, people eventually stop asking me because they're like, I just don't understand. Um, but I know, I guess I've been competing in endurance sports almost 
20 years now. And um, only this last year did I get my first overall win. Yeah. Been second a dozen times. I mean, from, from the beginning, from high school through triathlon years, been second a dozen times. Um, and only just finished first. It was a relatively small race. Um, but the journey to get to that, like, I know, like, I was crying at the end. It was just like, it's such a big deal to have spent almost 20 years to get to this point. But I know that I've learned so many things about about me, about, you know, the, the analogies that come from, let's talk about, like, you know, if we want to talk about life or having a hard life less than talking about, well, it's just like running because this, you know, because like in running, you need to, you need to pace yourself or you need to, you know, and even that, that language permeates our culture, even for non-running people, pace yourself. Right. Yeah. Pace yourself, run your own race, those type of things. Yeah. And when it, when it gets, oh yeah. I mean the running analogy, like, um, for, for the, I mean, first of all, there are a lot of runners who are PhD students and I, and I right. don't think it's coincidence. I think there are like, <laughs> you know, there are life lessons that are infused in running that you can take to your, to your real life, you know? Um, but the interesting thing, when you mentioned, you know, winning your race, your first race, you know, I, I had that experience recently as well, but what I found is like the next day or even really that day, I didn't really feel any different. I didn't feel right. different about myself. Right. And right. I didn't feel any different about the performance. Like I felt just as good, you know, winning as I did not winning, but you know, exerting myself and, and challenging myself in the most authentic way. And I think that's a really, that's an important lesson for people to learn because there's this arrival fallacy, right? And it's not just unique to racing, like anything in life as well is that if I achieve this, then I will feel enough. Um, but you know, ultimately you don't feel any different when you, right. and right. that that feeling is so fleeting and it, and, and again, it gets back to the importance of the journey and like, loving the process of what you're doing. And, and one thing that I'm really working with my coach on, you know, in running and in life too, is loving the hard moments just as much as you love the good moments. Like it's so important to, you know, it's important to love the moment when you do win races and to appreciate all the effort that you put in to get into that point. But it's equally as important to love the, the challenging moments in your training when maybe you're dealing with injury or maybe you're, you know, you're burned out and you're not feeling it. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, to be able to embrace those moments um, and to bring the same joy into your training um, as you do when you have success, uh, that that's just so key to feeling fulfilled, um, you know, in that journey. But yeah, I, I experienced that myself. I, you know, in the moment, I, I thought it was a really cool thing that I, I won a race because um, I've never really been the athletic type. But, um, you know, then you see the second and third place finishers come across and you're just talking about the journey. You're not talking about anything related to the result. You're not talking about the trophy. You're not talking about any award. You're talking about that shared struggle. So it's an important lesson. And I, and I think everybody would be well served to, to kind of feel that arrival fallacy as well. Um, cause it, it's the same thing with my research. I, I once thought that if, if I publish in this journal, um, I will, I will feel like I've made it as a scientist and that I just don't have that mentality anymore. So it's about immersing yourself in the moment. <laughs> yeah. I think that, I think that, you know, that, that permeates us in, in other ways too. Like I know, um, uh, you're probably familiar with like the fire movement right now, financial independence, retire early. And that, that permeates a lot of the culture I live in since I'm an entrepreneur. I own a couple of companies and it's like, there's this idea about, 
okay, well, if you earn, you have your net worth is so high, and then it's at this point like you've achieved whatever you you need to live this life that nobody else has. And yes, you do have opportunities that a lot of other people don't necessarily have, but you can be just as miserable with say $10 million in the bank as somebody with $0 in the bank, just depending on your own perspective. And I think you see it too with Olympians a lot of the time. I think this is pretty well documented. Like Olympic winners get get all this adulation and, and, and all this attention so fiercely focused and all this you know effort they put into in this one moment in time. And then it's almost like this, this vacuum everything just sucked out and the olympics are over and now what yeah yeah that's a scary moment in life i mean um you know i so i recently you know when i published my article in science there was this huge wave of feedback right Mm -hmm. and it lasted for about a week and then it became a vacuum and it was the first experience where i really had to like take a step back and say like in this moment, you have to embrace that you are enough. Like you don't need this external feedback and this external validation to be happy in the moment. And that was like an awesome lesson for me to learn was, you know, I can still experience joy, even if people are not validating the things I'm doing in life. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's not to say it was like an organic process, right? Like um, there was kind of a moment where I'm like, you know, I was waiting. I'm like, well, where's, where's the feedback today? Like, where's the message? Why, why people, why aren't people, you know, validating my opinion? (laughs) Yeah. Um, But then you, you know, you realize like, that's, that's a beautiful part of this process is just being able to, you know, allow yourself to see that emotion because that emotion is natural and it's, and it's, it's okay to feel that. Um, but then also to realize like, but I'm still, I'm still joyful in life and I'm still happy with who I am. Um, it's not like I've changed as a person. It's just that the world has changed. It's dynamic. It's, um, you know, uh, you know, impermanence is a beautiful quality of the human existence. So, yeah. You saw, I, I kind of wonder about your opinion on, um, I always feel like, and again, I think this is a matter of projection um, in my own personal journey, but I always felt like this sense of inadequacy is one like large source of fuel. I guess I should back up a little bit. I have a theory about motivation and I think motivation in any endeavor should be fueled by what I refer to as your bag of whys. Mm -hmm. So having a singular why is not enough because that singular why will fail at some point or another. It'll come back or it may be gone forever, but it will fail. So I, I think you need to have multiple whys for some endeavor that you're interested in. And I think my thought for a long time is that this like feeling of inadequacy is a huge source of fuel for trying to achieve something. So when you're like, I'm not good enough, that that gnawing inside of you pushes you forward stronger than a lot of other things will. Much like it's easier to be hateful or feel fearful than it is to be loving and happy. Yeah. You know, I think we're a little hard, hardwired for that. So so if we get rid of that feeling of inadequacy, how do we move forward, you know, as a culture or, or it, you know, collectively towards achieving a higher state of humanity. Yeah. See, that's interesting because when I hear that a feeling of inadequacy drives someone, it's, it feels to me like a very unsustainable framework for motivation because 
you, I mean, you are going to fail and you're going to fail hard. If, if mm-hmm. you're trying something hard, you're going to fail hard. So it's in those moments that, um, you know, I feel like that's a very tenuous um, platform upon which to stand, I, okay. you know, and it's interesting though. I mean, it is a motivator um, and I've been motivated by that in my life. Um, I think, you know, ultimately the one, the one arena from which I'm trying to operate is this notion that of gratitude and joy, because those things should be ever present in your life. Those things can be ever present in your life is living, you know, being able to, again, it gets back to, you know, being able to appreciate the challenging moments just as much as you love the good moments. So, you know, how that looks from a running perspective for me is I'm no stranger to injury and I've had multiple injuries along my journey that have set me back. Mm-hmm. And what I've always found, you know, I, I'm not, again, I'm not going to lie. Like I feel inadequate, right? Like who am I to say I'm an ultra runner? I've been actually dealing with a hip injury recently. So who am I to say I'm an ultra runner? I couldn't go out and run 31 miles today. Um, so there is a feeling of inadequacy there, but what I've always found is that these moments really refine, um, my lens on this whole thing. And I always come back with more gratitude for the, for the most mundane aspects of running, right? Like I, I used to get so stoked on the big workout or on the big long run, but now I just get stoked honestly by putting on the shoes and just thinking like I get to go out today and maybe it's going to be the most boring route but I get to feel my feet on the ground, right? Like I never had that perspective of just being able to appreciate these little things that make the experience so rewarding. Um, so yeah, it all gets back to gratitude for me. Um, and I think from, you know, again, I'm sure it varies per individual and I'm sure that people are motivated by fear and people are motivated by anger and people are motivated by inadequacy. And I can't say for certain whether that's the best model or the worst model. Um, but ultimately I think for someone like myself who does have a history of not accepting myself, mm-hmm. um, ultimately it gets back to how can I be most joyful today and how can I extract the most out of my experiences? Right. So, so how do you get from a place where, you know, you, you are, you feel inadequate or you don't feel like you have enough it, to, to a place where you are grateful or you like, do you like, do you keep a gratitude journal or you know what what do you do i know um i've been trying to be more grateful for my circumstances like this last year having kind of achieved things like i bought my first house and we you know moved to a nice part of town and it's like there's still plenty of things i want to do and have and all these kind of things but trying to remember how fortunate i am so i know i don't keep a journal i could probably do a better job so i'm kind of curious like what you do to to maintain that attitude. Yeah. From a very like fundamental level, I mean, meditation has been a big thing in my life as well, because I've always struggled with being in the moment and I have mm-hmm. a tendency really to, you know, mm-hmm. um, distract myself and not to appreciate these kind of small things that you can really latch onto. So mindfulness and meditation for me has been an opportunity to, to be more aware and to be more present in the moment and to appreciate these small things that may have otherwise escaped my lens on life. Um, so that certainly is a very fundamental way from which you can kind of build on those things. But yes, gratitude journals, um, huge. I don't actually write mine down on a daily basis. I probably should. Um, but I do take a few, mo- a few moments every morning to just think of three or four things that I'm appreciative of for that day. And I try to, you know, allow that to permeate through my life. Um, in that, you know, throughout that 24 hour period is to remember those things and to try to live them out. Um, 
so you know that's certainly one thing but again i think it also gets back to this notion of success and failure and you know for me success on a daily basis is how can i bring joy into other people's lives and so again it's kind of detaching from outcome and just being grateful for these small little things that may not go on a resume at the end of the day, right? Mm -hmm. But they do provide for a very rich life. And, you know, again, it's this incremental journey. So these small things continue to develop and to develop and you gain more relationships and connections and you learn more about yourself. It's kind of the snowball effect where you can continue to have momentum starting at the small and then just getting bigger and bigger. And I found that like, this sounds a little woo woo, but I found that the more authentic I live and, you know, the nicer I am to people and, you know, the nicer I am to myself, that the universe rewards that in really interesting and cool ways. Um, so, you know, it's, again, it's not, you know, I don't want to come across as a self-help guru. Like that's, <laughs> that's certainly my thing. And I've been, I've been criticized on Twitter for that as well. Um, but, you know, ultimately I, I think it is just like really embracing those small things in life that provide fulfillment. I think it's, I think the whole self-help thing is, is tough because I kind of touched on points from this in the past. And a lot of things we're talking about, um, I saw this book sitting on my, my desk, Life is a Marathon. I don't know if you've seen that. Matt Fitzgerald's new book, I had him on um, several weeks back. Uh, and so we think of, I think in that interview I, I talked about, and it reminds me here that there are attitudes that are effective for living a positive life, whether we know the actual, I'll say, mechanism behind them. And that's where that kind of like woo-woo thought comes yeah. in where it's like, you know, if I believe that the universe will give me everything and that it'll just come to me, it's like, well, okay, maybe not. But, but even if that isn't the real mechanism, we can see that people that have these attitudes tend to be happier or or live more fulfilling lives so it's like okay even if you think that that the whole the, the explanation is complete bs can't you see that the adoption of the mentality is still resulting in a positive net effect right right and yeah and like and I don't want to give a bad impression of self-help books. I mean, my journey, I was largely influenced by Rich Roll, for example. Like mm -hmm. I was reading his stuff and I started listening to his podcast. And I'm like, here's this guy who made these complete life changes, not attached to any outcome. Like there was a lot of risk, you know, a lot of risk on his part to lose, you know, to leaving his job and becoming a full-time athlete. Um, but, you know, he did these things and, you know, a lot of success just kind of flowed from that naturally. And I love the word that you use with mechanism because, right, like, it's hard, you know, when we, when we're talking about these kind of qualitative experiences, it's hard not to put a finger at one thing that leads to success, but it is, it's kind of this collection, this network of relationships and experiences that provides for this full experience. Um, yeah, I, I, yeah, I love that. And it, again, it's one of those things that I still struggle with because right, I'm a PhD student in the quantitative sciences. So like, and my job is to uncover mechanism. So I have right. to distinguish like that professional part of my life where I want answers to everything in my personal life where I have to be okay sometimes with not having the answer to things, which is more often the case than not. And it, and it's this, you know, it's a radical acceptance, right? Like you just have to be at peace, um, with the unknowing. Um, but again, there's a lot of fulfillment in that too. Um, you have to just trust and, um, and trust is a beautiful thing. So, 
Yeah, I, I think that the toughest part is like getting people going because I know that whenever somebody's talking about it, like for me, often it's like a business thing because if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So I often think think, think about things in that lens and it's like, I'm often just like, people say to me, oh, I wish I could start, you know, whatever business I had this idea and whatever. I wish I could be an entrepreneur like you. You know, I hear that and I'm like, well, just start. Like, it is that simple. Like, it, it isn't simple, but it is that simple. Like, you're overthinking it. And then from there, it's that trust aspect, that trust that things will continue to work out. Like, like you mentioned earlier, you are going to fail. Yeah. I think I mentioned this with John too, in in my chat with him, just like knowing ahead of time, I am going to fail. That is a hundred percent guaranteed. It will happen, but that's okay. Yeah. And that kind of like we've touched on, like, Failure is not a reflection of my self-worth. It is simply feedback on what is not working. Right. Right. And, 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 well, and failure, I mean, failure is essential to growing as a human being. Like, Mm -hmm. and and that's where, you know, I'm big on this notion of productive failure. I mean, that was the, that was the whole point of the article that I published in science is that Mm -hmm. there's beauty in failure and we need to start celebrating that because we have a tendency as a culture that glorifies outcomes. We have a tendency to want to, to kind of silo those, to isolate those, to, to omit those from our story. When in reality, if you talk to any successful person, I guarantee that guarantee you, they will tell you that the moments in which they actually grew most as an individual is when they felt like they were failing. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, and again, like, Jumping into the void, accepting that uncertainty, as you mentioned, it's an incredibly scary thing. And for someone who kind of, I grew up really in the cookie cutter mold, like I went to a high school, I was protected in that environment. I went to college, I was protected in that environment. I had, you know, numbers to, to assign value to, to my worth as a student, right? Like I had all of these kind of protective nets. But then when you get outside of that, you realize that kind of carving your own path in a, in a way is so much more fulfilling. And I have to embrace that now too, like, you know, putting a message out into the world, um, that's different. It goes against the grain. You have to be okay with the negative feedback that comes from that. And you have to, you know, you have to accept that in order to kind of put forth this message, you're going to have to continually step into that void in conversations, in your writing, on podcast interviews, um, you know, it's this kind of continual process of being okay with uncertainty and understanding that, yeah, you're going to fail hard. If you're trying something hard, you're going to fail hard. But um, your response to that failure is where you learn so much about yourself. And that's where life becomes rich. So this is, this is well outside your purview of expertise, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, Thinking about school, obviously we, you know, it's again, another very quantitative environment. What's your grade? How, how many things did you remember for this test? Um, how's your GPA coming along? Um, all of these things. And I think it is partially because of that desire for a metric of success. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to measure, say, you know, I've seen, I haven't recently been paying that much attention, but in the past I've seen the ideas about you know, cutting music programs because we're, you know, as a, as a culture, we're falling, be- falling behind in math and science and, and STEM fields and saying, okay, let's cut out music and let's cut out art and let's cut out all these extraneous things 
because how do you you know how do you quantify success in these environments which you you still can kind of in the grade level but like you know how do we incorporate more like qualitative success or or or, or even over remove that word like qualitative experience qualitative learning in a school environment since that's you know i, I at least i believe that's part of what makes the most successful people successful is they aren't so stuck on just these very linear attachments to this metric. It's these, it's these kind of tangential relationships that come together in that qualitative environment. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I, I love that. I'm big on this. You know, I, education really is my passion at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. And this is something I've been thinking about a lot is how to bring this element of fulfillment into a space that is so married to numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's damaging too, because when students become attached to a number, they're, you know, they're ultimately at the end of the day, they're blinding themselves to the beauty of the journey and, and thinking about how we can incorporate productive failure into programs from, from a pedagogical perspective is super interesting. Um, and, and again, like getting back to like the music and, you know, the arts, that creative expression is everything like that. That is so much more important than acquiring a piece of knowledge that ultimately at the end of the day, at the end of the day, you're probably going to forget. Mm-hmm. So, it, you know, it's about incorporating these elements of creativity and thriving and growing and improvement. And I don't know, like, I'm not going to claim to know the answers to how we evaluate that. Um, I think that's incredibly challenging to do, evaluating qualitative improvement as opposed to quantitative improvement. But it's something that we need to incorporate more into education, in my, in, in my opinion, is we need to think you know, more about how are we challenging students and how are we supporting students and how are we you know, providing the affirmation and that support that allows a student to grow over time instead of just acquiring pieces of knowledge and meeting test scores. Um, it's, it's a, again, it's a huge discussion, but um, it's something is, you know, is a personal interest of mine as well. And I can often reflect on my, you know, my experiences in sports to bring that into academia as well. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, as we've talked about, like, you know, thriving and fulfillment in sports, um, at least for, for the both of us, is more as, you know, from a qualitative lens as opposed to a quantitative lens. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, in part of knowing that that's important is also being cognizant of the fact that eventually, even if you're world champion, eventually you will not be world champion. Like, you can't be world champion forever. Yeah. You know, so what do you get from it? besides that and then trying to derive some meaning from there um i saw i was kind of looking through your twitter feed a little bit and i saw you had um retweeted this article about running is not therapy yeah um (laughs) and we kind of touched a little bit about like i think about running as meditation sometimes and and being cognitively helpful um, for various reasons, you know, kind of allowing your mind to wander sometimes and other times to focus. Um, I assume that you probably agree with the thesis of this article. So why is running not therapy? Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm, I love that you asked the question. So the piece was written by a good friend of mine, um, Zoe, uh, assistant editor at Trail Runner magazine. Um, and I think it's an incredibly important piece because, you know, from a media perspective, oftentimes we take these stories of people like myself. You know, I I am very open about my past experiences with men, with mental illness, 
you know, we take those stories and we kind of superimpose this journey of running on there. And we come to the conclusion that running was the, the means by which this individual recovered. Mm-hmm. Um, when in reality, the complexity of mental illness and the complexity of improvement over time cannot be distilled down to the simple act of putting your feet in front of, uh, in front of one another. And the point that Zoe brought up that I love you know, she didn't discount the benefits of running by any means. Like, you know, of course, running is an incredibly centering experience. It connects us to community. It's a, it's a means by which we get to explore our potential. But when it comes to mental illness, and we're talking about a clinical manif- manifestation, we're, right, talks right. About, we're talking about thought patterns and behavioral patterns that need to be approached intentionally, right? Like there are, there are you know, known mechanisms, known modalities in which we can come in and help someone correct you know, we disconnect from past trauma, you know, address past trauma, address behavioral patterns, address thought patterns. That's a very mechanical process that requires, you know, the help of an expert as opposed to this kind of ethereal nature of running, which again, it is relaxing and you do get a flood of hormones and it makes you feel good, but it doesn't necessarily address these underlying problems that can manifest, you know, in particular when running is taken away. And, and that's, you know, that's been a huge um, insight for me is that in the times at which I've been injured and I can't run, you know, all of these underlying problems come to the surface and I have to address them, you know, you know, straight on. Um, whereas opposed, I think with running sometimes, unfortunately, it does serve as a distraction to problems. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and I think that's, it's something that's hard for people to hear. And I'll say that that article has kind of stirred up some feedback, some negative feedback amongst the running community, but it is, it's hard for people to hear, but I think that running does oftentimes serve as a distraction for people, and we're not actually getting to the root problem of what is causing mental illness. And so, absolutely, like running is a beautiful thing. Like it can absolutely complement therapy. And I, you know, I go to therapy, and my therapist absolutely is enthusiastic about me about me running. But you know, I would be it would be disingenuous for me to say that the running is the means by which I have improved as an individual when it's not the case, it's been the discussions with my therapist and addressing why I feel so uncomfortable eating certain foods and then addressing how we can make those changes in my lifestyle such that those problems don't actually manifest at a physical level, right? Like there's a mechanical process that, you know, is distinct from these, you know, benefits that you get from putting one foot in front of the other. Mm-hmm. So the heart of it seems to come to, and I, I think I, I think I agree with you on a, a, a lot of aspects, or maybe even all of them, really. Um, as I uh, a little bit of background, so my undergrad, I double majored in undergrad in psychology and math, cool. um, this very weird dichotomy. Um, but it, it, I, you know, I think about the distinction here between a clinically diagnosable mental illness, which was important that you said that yeah. versus like, I just feel sad today, which is, you know, a normal part of the human experience right. in terms of saying, is it therapy? But I think to me, it seemed like as I read through the article and kind of looked at the comments and the kind of the counter arguments against, you know, what she had said mm-hmm. was that it seems like it comes down to, and this is this is actually coming up right now in a, a lot of aspects. I've, I've encountered this in one of my products, is, which is aimed at um, the CBT group of people. Um, okay. It's made for teachers and therapists to use. Is the 
specific use of language. Yes. And the context in which we use it and, yeah. and the importance of it. So um, in this case, saying running is therapy, the, the key word being therapy and, and the meaning of that. Um, so I kind of wonder, you know, obviously I've shared my own experiences about how running has, you know, helped me learn life lessons. And I would say probably become a, a better, more fulfilled person, which I, you could probably argue is therapeutic in some sense. So, so how do we approach that when we can't say, I'll say can't, I'll just, I'll make a hard line here, but obviously yeah. nothing's super black and white. Um, you know, how do we approach that and say, well, running isn't therapy, but it's therapeutic. Like, you know, how do we approach that from a language standpoint? Yeah, no, I mean that I, you know, I'm going to be honest. I don't have the answer to that question. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, you're absolutely right. Like saying something is therapy and saying something is therapeutic. There are people who will say that the two terms are the same thing. Right. Um, and and then there are people who will say that they're distinct. And I'm more on the distinct side. I think that there are many things that can be therapeutic. It doesn't mean it actually serves the mechanical process of, you know, that therapy serves and actually, address, again, addressing these underlying issues. But you're right. I mean, running, you know, running, at least in my life, has created this kind of emotional framework that is is much more sustainable, right? Like it's this completely distinct emotional framework that I can grasp onto in my life and I can leverage, you know, in various parts of my life, you know, but the reality is I've got issues. <laughs> like I have issues like everybody else. And, and what I love that Zoe incorporated into this piece, there was a line in there. I don't remember the exact quote, but ultimately it was that we need to celebrate the strength that's required for people, for people to receive professional help. Like at the end of the day, that is so important is that we celebrate that. We say that strength is seeking help. You know, that's being courageous. That's being brave. And I, you know, I think it's, that's an important element here is we need to consider the power of community and connection with other people, as opposed to kind of this rugged individualistic perspective that you can just strap on some shoes, you can go out and run an ultra, and you're going to feel so much better about yourself. Mm -hmm. um, I think that, you know, again, it's, it's seeking out that connection um, being honest with yourself, those are all amazing things. But yeah, I, when it comes down to therapy versus therapeutic, I absolutely don't have the, I don't have the answer to that question. I'm not, I'm not as smart. <laughs> I'm not smart enough for that. So, well, that's I, like, that's I feel like, um, I feel like oftentimes language is almost, um, like a cage we have to live in, in, in that we have these ideas that we don't necessarily know how to express, or sometimes, language can force our understanding into a certain avenue when if we had the words and and had a way to relate these experiences or, or emotions or ideologies in a different way that we may be able to be different people um do you speak a different language at all uh well i mean i took spanish in college i okay. shouldn't that my undergraduate education is <laughs> old but <laughs> okay but you, you have some experience like you know that just you know, in Spanish, like you, you ex can express things in a different way than you would in English. It's not necessarily at the beginning. You're like, right. okay, that's not intuitive. That's not how I would say it. But then you begin to think outside of your own language mm -hmm. to understand that the way that it's viewed through this language, this other language is a different lens of viewing reality, not just another set of words, mm -hmm. you know? So I feel like that that language is almost a trap sometimes. And it comes up with the, 
yeah. this this product I have in, in terms of um, I say I don't know if you're familiar with CBT and the and the method, but I mentioned um, you know how does this thing make you feel? And the contention with this product is well, it doesn't nothing makes me feel something, but it it can trigger it. And my contention is well, trigger and make are synonyms. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you know, where do we like? Where do we draw the line between like, okay, it is important to understand there's a causal chain of events between what is happening to me mm-hmm. and that I can affect it versus saying no, you can't use this word. You know, there's this, there's like this, this struggle there between almost like a, a ridiculous thing about like you could never use the word make in my case in this particular case versus. Okay, let's look at the reality of what's happening and address and say, okay, language is limited, so let's 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 work in the gray area. Yeah, I no, I, I love that. Um, yeah, I think that notion of kind of expanding. So the way I describe the interplay between my running and therapy is the running has expanded my sense of clarity. Right, like when I'm, you know, there's so much opportunity on a run to see the things in your life and to see them with clarity and without judgment. And then, you know, given that kind of extended, expanded purview of your world and your existence, you can bring that into a more mechanical space and you can say, hey, you know, I noticed this about my behavior. Um, can we talk about that and we can, can we address the best way to go about that? So, you know, it, it, like there's an interplay between the two, but um, yeah, I think that's a beautiful thing in talking about sport is that it can really expand your understanding of your existence and your world and awareness is a beautiful thing, but it's not everything. It's necessary, but it's not sufficient, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I, I think there's, again, there's a beautiful interplay between the two. But, yeah, when it gets to the language, um, I think ultimately where people stand with that article is just there are differences in how we're approaching the language and how we're embracing mm-hmm. the language and how we're applying it to our own experience. Um, so, I mean, that's, but that's the beautiful thing you know, kind of getting back to the overall purpose of that article, that's the beautiful thing is when you put something out to the world and there's and there's criticism of it, you're doing something right, right? Mm-hmm. Like you're stimulating the right conversation. And I think especially in the sports world, we really need to think about how we contextualize um, and um, communicate the impact of these, you know, of activity, whether that be biking, swimming, running. Um, we really need to contextualize their importance and, and distinguish that from proven mod- modalities that have their own distinct benefits as well. Um, this is like involved, but kind of the sidebar at the same time. You made me think about like, I, I kind of remember almost distinct points in time um, growing up, getting older, having different experiences and, and you know, running or, or competing throughout all this time. But just these almost points in time where I, I realize I have a greater awareness of how the world works or how culture works, or at least my perception of, you know, how the world works or how culture works. I kind of wonder if, you know, I I think sport probably provides an opportunity for greater experiences, but I kind of wonder if it's necessary for say the people that completely disagree with, the article and say, well, no, running is therapy. It's my therapy. Mm-hmm. And, so, you know, and let's also suggest that that person does not have a di- diagnosable mental illness, mm-hmm. you know, and they've never met anybody that has 
a mental illness. So they have no experiences of that or concept of it and limited understanding. I kind of wonder if it's necessary to have that experience for many people. And that experience is the way that we begin to empathize and think about things in a greater sense than simply, you know, this is my modality. This is how I understand the world. This is therefore what everything must be. And that almost like empathy is the key to like reasonable understanding instead of this is what I think. Therefore, this is how things are. Yeah. Not really a question, but. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I'll I'll kind of, I'll add to that, you know, I mean, we're all subject to our own biases, right? And our own experiences. And I think, you know, to the person who says that running is my therapy, like, I think that's an amazing response too. Um, Ultimately, if you feel better because you run, you know, I'm more of kind of an output versus mechanism person, right? Like, Mm -hmm. if you feel better when you run and you feel and you feel like running is your therapy, that's perfect. And that's a perfect perspective. Um, And, and I'm, I'm so happy that you that you get therapeutic benefit from that. Um, You know, but again, at the end of the day, you know, as how I see things, I think the language is important as someone who has dealt with clinical depression, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and who, you know, has experience, you know, receiving professional help and kind of, you know, exploring my own self um, in various ways. Um, you know, I think that the, the two need to be distinguished. But for the person who does disagree, I think it's, you know, it's perfectly okay to disagree. And at the end of the day, it's, um, you know, it's, a, it's an important discussion that we're having. And it's important that we validate and affirm people's experiences, because at the end of the day, you know, um, it's their own story and, and they get to tell it. So and that's there's a beauty. There's a beautiful thing in that. So, yeah. Yeah. So we're I was, we're starting to run a little short on time for our recording here. So I have to make kind of a, a hard pull back <laughs> towards the end of our conversation. Unfortunately, we, we, we've kind of gone down a rabbit hole. Um, I'll have to have you on so you can talk about your research okay. um, more, <laughs> more later. Um, but the, the question I'd like to ask everybody, because this is kind of a universal thing, um, this year, as I'm asking everyone, after like a hard workout um, or hard race, your choice, if you could only choose one food for recovery for the rest of your life, what do you choose? Man. So, you know, I'm not sponsored. So I don't, I, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't <laughs> carry myself to a product. So I'm going to go old school, sweet potatoes all day. Okay. I, I go so hard on sweet potatoes. Um but yeah, I mean, you know, I do use some products, uh, but you know, if I have to choose one, it's yeah, it's sweet potatoes. <laughs> so I haven't had anybody use sweet potatoes. I, I get chocolate milk pretty often. Okay. Um, pizza, beer. I've had ice cream every once in a while, which hits hits home for me because I love ice cream. But I haven't had anybody use sweet potatoes yet. I guess that's the consequence of having a vegan on the show. So. <laughs> <laughs> Oh. That's that's fair enough. That's a whole other topic of conversation we can get into is like incorporating that with running and stuff. Yeah. Um, Mike, if people do actually want to see your research, since we, since we didn't get into it, yeah. um, where can people find you? Where can people see like what you're up to? Yeah. Well, on social media, um, my handle for Instagram and Twitter is at Michael Hagedown, um, all one word. Uh, if you're interested in my research, I don't know. Um, if anyone listening to this would be, but you can look me up on pubmed.gov. Um, and I've published a, a couple pieces about my research. Um, but yeah, 
uh, social media, I'm relatively active and in my email too, it's easy to find. Um, I'm always happy to, to respond and to hear people's stories and to engage in that way as well. Sounds great. Thanks for coming on today, Mike. Yeah, thanks so much. I appreciate it.